honor today to have with us Dr. Doug Beecham. He is the director of World Missions for the IPHC. I want you to give him a warm Whitley welcome. Dr. Beecham. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's an honor to be here with you. I'm delighted my wife Susan can be with me. And uh, we've been together uh, three weekends in a row. Been married nearly 37 years. When you say been together, you probably need to correct that. But with all the, um, thank you, all the international travel, it's sort of nice to be uh, together. We live in uh, Oklahoma City, and uh, we're just very, very blessed. She's director of pharmacy at Oklahoma Heart Hospital and can sneak off a weekend or two with me occasionally. So we're grateful for that. And I really appreciate your pastor allowing me to be with you today, and thank you for what you do for World Missions Ministries. I need to tell you something. This church was the 24th uh, in the ranking from one down to 100 of the churches that we, we put in the top 100. You ranked 24th in all the Pentecostal Holiness churches in the United States, including a major church in Hong Kong, in giving to World Missions last year. Hallelujah. Thank you for that. That's... Uh, you gave over $42,000, you support missionaries, you give to what we call global outreach, you uh, support children with people to people, and you, uh, you have special projects you support, and we thank you so much for that. Just very quickly, uh, there are over 200 Pentecostal Holiness missionaries serving in 103 countries around the world. Here in the United States, the Pentecostal Holiness Church has about 2,000 congregations, and about 265,000 members. Outside the USA, there are over 12,000 congregations and over 1.4 million members. And so when you give, you're really helping to make a world of difference, literally. And I thank you so much for that. You can go to our webpage and uh, wmm.iphc.org, and you can find out more about how you can get involved. You can do short-term trips. Our office plans those. You can go all over the world. Uh, and I'd, very quickly before we get into the text and the message, I just want to mention uh, four quick things to you. Number one, would you join with me and pray to the Lord of the harvest, as Jesus asked us to pray, would send more laborers into the mission field. We need more North American missionaries to serve in countries outside the USA. Not for two weeks, not even for two years. I want some people that God is calling to live the next 20 years of your life somewhere else. Learn a different language. In fact, learn two or three different languages. Operate in a different culture. God may be calling some of you. And if he is, I'm the guy you need to talk to. And, uh, and so uh, we can help you process that. We're not just going to throw you overseas. We'll train you and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it's a great opportunity. And, and thank God he's answering that prayer, by the way. Secondly, I ask you, every family in this church, if you're not supporting on a monthly basis a missionary, I encourage you to begin doing that this month. You can start with $5 a month or whatever God puts on your heart. I'm telling you, you're helping somebody uh, serve the purposes of God. Most are called to give. That's what you and I do. And God calls those who go, who are willing to change their culture and their identity. Uh, and, and we who give help them get there. So thank you for doing that. The third thing. Uh, is to support this annual global outreach offering with a day's wage. Your pastor maybe in your missions committee can tell you more about that. 
And then finally, to support a child and people to people. We have feeding programs there. We feed over 6,000 children a day around the world. And I'm telling you, for $20 a month, you're making a huge difference in a child's life. And there are so many ways you can serve. You can go and serve in medical missions. We're getting ready to send a doctor right now, he and his family, who are going to go serve in uh, not just South Africa, but all of, of Sub-Sahara Africa. Uh, you can serve as a nurse, as a pharmacist. We're getting ready to send a pharmacist to the Sudan. You can, you can serve and help us with our people-to-people -people feeding programs. I desperately need about five people that God will call to go live, if, if nothing more than for a minimum of five to six years in West Africa, to help feed children in, in West Africa. For there are all kinds of opportunities to teach in our Bible schools, to be an evangelist, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So you can go to our webpage, you can find out more about it, but thank you so much for what you've done. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me, I want to this morning just share a few thoughts with you about how do we navigate the highs and lows of life and what are some issues related to that. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, a couple of quick verses for you there. The story is very familiar. It's David and Goliath. And so you know the background. You know how the story turns out. But look very quickly at the text. Verse 49. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. And then uh, at verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. And then if you'll turn over to chapter, uh, chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. That's a nice biblical way of saying, kill the sorry rascal. <laughs> and David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you really are, as the choir sang, you really are the way maker. We thank you that wherever we are in life, wherever we are in the high points and the low points and all in between, you're there to make a way of your abundant life and your grace. I pray that you will open our hearts this day. Take my feeble effort to communicate and touch us as only you can do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, amen. You know, it's a great thing to have a high point in life. All of us know those days. Maybe the day you got married, maybe the day you got accepted to college, or you graduated uh, valedictorian of your high school class, or you, you finally passed algebra. 
you know, whatever the big, yeah, I understand that. But whatever the big day was, where there was sort of a high point in life, you got the job you didn't think you were getting. Or in this economy, you, you got a pay raise, a substantial pay raise in this economy. We all know what it is to have those high points of life. And, and, and you know, we, we all know, of course, that life is never a flat line. Well, at least only once a flat line. And life is a compendium of highs and lows. And most of us live our lives somewhere along that compendium back and forth. Well, here's a young man, David, a teenager, who does something a lot better than, you know, getting the North Carolina State record for high school football touchdowns in one season. He takes the giant and he slays him without a sword. This is a kid who can throw the rock. They'd hire him today to pitch for Atlanta or somewhere. And, and, and can you imagine what it was like to walk out there, throw the rock, the giant is slain, You've not only killed the giant, you've delivered the whole country. Saul had already promised your family gets big tax breaks. And, and, you, and you, get, you get to pick, you know, you get the, the king's wife you get, or, or daughter. You get to marry her for your wife. I mean, this kid's got the best signing bonus you could ever imagine. He's at the high point of life. And all of us know what it is. We know that wonderful feeling when the elevator's going up. And, and, and you know, everything feels good and sounds good. When life is going up, on the, uh, going up like that, what we don't realize is that right around the corner, there always lurks somebody or something that wants to punch a hole in our balloon. And just a few uh, weeks after this episode, over in chapter 18, David joins the parade that Saul has thrown to celebrate the victory of the Philistine. And Saul is going through, and he hears the people begin to cheer that Saul has slain his thousands. And that, I mean, that sounds good to the king. That's a wonderful thing. He didn't know they had created a second verse that was not in the script. Because David comes along, and they start to sing, and David has slain his ten thousands. You don't show up the boss. Not in front of him, at least. That's when you want to talk behind somebody's back. Can you imagine David wanting to say to the choir, tone it down, please? You know, let it be Saul slain his ten thousands, even if it's not true. And, and, you know, the bubble just burst. There's no indication in this text that David was dealing with the, the fundamental problem, I think, that emerges at the high points of life. And that's the problem of pride. We do know Saul was dealing with it. Saul's pride was affected by what happened to David. And because he was affected by it, it impacted David's life. And the elevator started going down real fast. One of the issues you and I have to deal with when life is going well, probably the greatest issue, is the, the masquerade that comes to us with that, that demonic side of pride. Because pride makes us think we got there on our own. Now, we can say all the right religious words. I know how to play the game. I've been working at it for about 60 years. I was saved in my mother's womb. You know, for all practical purposes. Like some of you, my dad was a Pentecostal holiness minister. And, and you know, I, I know how to play this game. I also have become more and more aware of how pride shows its ugly face. And how it, it lurks down inside. 
and, and, and I know how to say the right things, but I know what's really going on back down in the back of me. Remember where the Bible talks about having a stiff neck? Anybody ever been out here? You ever sat there and the pastor had said something and you knew in your heart he's right, but up here you disagreed. Your flesh said, no, that's not really me. And you felt yourself stiffen up. Anybody ever done that? That's pride. Pride's a subtle monster. And it comes and it wants to attack us at the high places. It wants us to forget that it was really God's grace that got us there. Like the Apostle Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. God's grace is always sufficient for me. It's God's favor. You got that promotion. Yeah, you worked hard for it. But that's not finally why you got there. You got there because God loves you and God's got a strategic purpose for you in that. And he's put you there. He's favored you that way. Because he's got things he wants to develop out of your life. So it's his grace and not your own self-achievement I'll tell you a funny story about it my wife's kind enough to sort of be my straight in this the uh, this is really a true story it happened May a year ago and we're we're very very thankful for the way God's blessed our two children our daughter uh, both our children our son and our daughter graduated from Emmanuel College uh, where she and I graduated from and, and they went on and, and, and have done, they've been very successful. Our daughter went to law school in Washington, D.C. She's an attorney in Washington. Our, our son, uh, last year, just graduated from uh, uh, medical school in Oklahoma. And, and he, he had just graduated a weekend before we went to a major international conference with a lot of people I work with. And one of our good friends from Georgia happened to be there. And he had known our son Douglas while Douglas was growing up when I pastored him in Franklin Springs. And uh, so he was asking, he said, how's Douglas doing? And, and I, I couldn't wait to tell him. I mean, we're, in the best sense of the word, we're proud of what our children have done. Now, I know, I really know, deep in my heart, that this is because of the favor of God and their mother. <laughs> I mean, I know that. Deep down inside, I understand that. They did this in spite of me. And, and I... Uh, but that day, I thought, I'll take a little glory for it. I, I, I really, I, I felt it coming on me. And there was, a, there was a voice inside of me that said, stop, don't do this. Don't do this. She's standing there. Don't do this. And I'm saying to my friend Greg, Greg, I, I can't wait to tell you, Douglas has done so well. I'm so proud of him. Just graduated from med school. He's moving to Lexington, Kentucky to begin his residency in anesthesia. And I said, and I sort of laughed, sort of that sort of prideful, self-deprecating way we do. I said, you know, he'll be a, a real Dr. Beecham who can really help you. And, you know, expecting him to compliment me and say, oh, no, 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 you were my pastor. You really helped us as well. Yeah, am I the only one who's ever played these games? <laughs> Come on, y'all, you know. And, and you know what he says to me? He says, oh, that makes two Dr. Beecham's who can put you to sleep. I did this little, <laughs> you know, that little fake kind of thing we all do. Then my wife, the mother of these children, this woman who's endured with me through thick and uh, thin is the right word, right? She doesn't miss a beat. 
She says yes, but one is painless. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of walked away. I laughed. You know, it it really is funny. We we laugh about it. And and I I, I walked away, and I I realized the little voice came to The voice of the Holy Spirit said, gotcha. That little sneaky stuff was wanting to show itself off again, wasn't it, Doug? I said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Pride. We, know, we all know how it operates, don't we? God has a way of dealing with us and reminding us. Let me tell you a mission story. I'm going to tell you two quick mission stories as part of this message today. This, this mission story sort of relates to it. This was back in, uh, in, in November uh, I had gone to Southeast Asia. God has really blessed the Pentecostalist church all around the world. We're on every inhabited continent. And uh, I had about a two-and-a-half-week trip where I was in uh, Bangladesh, Myanmar, which was the old Burma, and in uh, Nepal. And I just had a wonderful experience. We're, we're, we're growing significantly in the Muslim country of Bangladesh and, and we, we, we have over 14,000 members in this military junta of Myanmar. God is wonderfully blessing there. And I, I told your pastor earlier, I want you to go on a trip with me. I want you to go to Myanmar and Nepal with me. I really do. And I, uh, uh, the leader of our work in Southeast Asia lives in Japan, Russell Board. Russell had said, listen, we can, there are several other countries we can go to. But he said, I'd really like for you to go with me to Kathmandu which is the capital of Nepal. He said, we only have one church there. But he said, I think it's something strategic about it. He said, you know, we could use your time more wisely and go to more places, you know, bigger places. But I, I said to him, I said, listen, Russ, you know where we are. You will go to Kathmandu if that's what you say. Went to Kathmandu, real quick trip in, about two days, uh, two nights there, and met this church that met in a, a, a little room about half the size of the stage. Walked in in the morning. These 50 members, Nepalese, had taken all day off for work on a Tuesday to sit there on the floor and listen to me and a couple of others minister to them. After about 30 minutes, I thought, I need to be on the floor and they need to be speaking to me. You could look out and you could see the Himalayas. I mean, absolutely beautiful location. And there's so many other things about that I could tell you. But as we ministered through the day, the Holy Spirit just began to stir there. And, and here was this small little group of people in what can be a, a rather hostile environment to Christians. Here, here was a small number with a passionate love for Jesus who had such joy on their hearts. Who, who love the Lord, who've, who've really made tremendous sacrifices to serve Jesus there. And, and the Holy Spirit at the end of the day began to stir and to say to them, fear not, little flock, for it's the Father's, Father's good intention to give you his kingdom. The Holy Spirit, speaking through a number of us, began to give them an identity of why they were there because we began to realize they're at the rooftop of the world, the highest mountains on earth. And that what God has done, they're not about how big they're going to get. They are about the fact that God has called them to be a witness to the creator of the universe and to the Lord of glory who died for every human being on planet earth. And that their 
call is to be intercessors and to declare from the rooftop of the world that Jesus Christ is Lord and let the message go down to every valley, every city, every river, every other mountain on earth. Jesus Christ is Lord. The power of God began to stir in their hearts and an identity that you could tell they had a sense of their prophetic destiny and the purposes of God. Russell and I were getting ready to leave, and Russ uh, said, we got to the airport actually at Kathmandu, and he said, we got there in, in a lot of time, and he said, you know what, we've got enough time if you want to do it. We can catch a quick flight, and we can fly down and see Mount Everest and fly back. Are you game? I said, sure. Paid 120 bucks, got on this dinky little airplane. Twelve people plus two pilots, six on this side, six on this side. No security door or anything of that nature for the cockpit. You just walk up to the front when they get up near Mount Everest to see it. And I fly a lot, so I'm used to turbulence. That, that part doesn't really bother me. What did bother me was how they would explain to Susan that the plane crashed in those mountains, that I died on Air Buddha. <laughs> I hadn't quite sorted out how I was going to have that message relayed to her. But nonetheless, here we are flying up there, and it's just a absolutely beautiful panoramic day we get up you go around where Mount Everest is and you're six nautical air miles so you're you're safe obviously but it was an incredibly beautiful experience flying back down the 30 minutes to Kathmandu and I began to cry because the Lord began to speak to me and the Lord said to me Doug don't you ever forget you've been to the highest place on earth and when the good things in your life, when they are happening to you, don't you ever forget that even in those highest places of your life, I am there. And I am the one who is at work for my glory through your life. Personally, I was praying for my family. I was praying for God's purposes around the world. And I just had this tremendous sense. I, I, I began to hum it aloud. Uh, from the rooftop of the world then sings my soul my savior God to thee how great thou art and I, I wanted to stand up in this plane and preach <laughs> just weeping and thanking the Lord as this powerful reminder to me that in the high places of life he is there and it's his glory that's at stake not my issues. The second thing is we all deal with low points in life. We know that. That's why I read the next passage to you. If you know the story from 1 Samuel pretty well, you know very quickly after the choir begins to sing, David slain his ten thousands, story goes downhill fast. And uh, David has to flee. Uh, David's life is threatened. Saul wants to kill him. And, and he goes through a, just a horrible journey of experiences. And things happen to other people because of him. Eighty-five priests at the village of Nob are killed because of David. Not only them, their wives and their children, including infants, are slaughtered. All the animals are slaughtered because of it. Only one priest survives. And, and David has to go hide out in Moab. And David has to hang around some other folks and feign madness just to be able to be there. I mean, it's a terrible experience. Life bottoms out for him very, very quickly. And, and he feels like he's being encircled. Anybody, ever, anybody been there? You ever felt that the sharks are gathering around you? 
You know, this is when David could have heard the sweet psalmist of Key West, Jimmy Buffett, sing, you know, fins to the left, fins to the right, and you're the only bait in town. And, and, and that's... And, 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 you know, he, he understood that. And, and all of us have been there. And here he is, finally hiding out in a place called En Gedi. And there in En Gedi, which is a very interesting place because it's right there next to the Dead Sea. Nowhere to run except to the Dead Sea. Do you realize the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth where you can stand on terra firma? It's the lowest place on earth. David's at the lowest place on earth in En Gedi. And he's hiding in a cave. And God allows Saul to come in to look, take care of a little personal business. And David and his friends, they see this. And his, his godly friends say, this is the answer to your prayer. You can deal with this right now. God's delivered your enemy into your hand. And David knew he couldn't go out and kill him. He knew. He knew, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. Somehow in the mix of, of God taking his hand off of leadership, he understood that I cannot take and put my hands on it. You've just got to leave that with God. But he thought, I can at least get the last word. And he goes and he cuts off a part of his robe while, the, while Saul's taking care of business so that the next day he can go out and wave it in his face. But you know what the text said? The text said that David was stricken in his spirit immediately after cutting that off because David realized what I was doing was I was trying to deal with my own insecurity and fear. If pride's the biggest threat at the top, when you and I are threatened at the lowest points of life, when things are not going well and it doesn't look like there's any way out, fear and insecurity drive our actions. And we make foolish decisions out of our insecurities and our fears. And David does that. He's stricken in his conscience because he realized he took something into his own hands out of his own fear, out of, out of the admonition of his own friends who thought they knew best rather than trusting God even when he doesn't sense he's got any future and any hope. And for some of you this morning, you're in that place or you know you're headed to that place and you're, you're desperately wanting to grab hold of your life and save it yourself. I'm telling you, if you try to save it yourself, you're going to lose in the long run. Even in the dead sea of your life, trust God. He knows where you are. He will not abandon you in your fear and your insecurity. We don't go out and kill people too much these days. But we do it with words, don't we? How many of us, like David, have got to have the last cutting remark? How many times have I been in an argument with somebody? Sometimes you and your spouse. Who's, who has to have the last word? Rather than saying, you know what, Lord? I recognize this battle's bigger than me. I'm going to trust you with it. I'll take my stings, I'll take my wounds, but I'm going to trust you. I, uh, 
thought about that because about three weeks after being in Kathmandu, I'd come back to Oklahoma City for a little bit and then had a, had a meeting in, uh, all right, step down here, had a meeting in uh, France and in uh, Israel. We had two groups who became part of the Pentecostalist church, one in the, uh, the suburbs of Paris and the other was in northern Galilee. There's wonderful, wonderful spirit-filled brothers and sisters in both settings. Had gone to Israel for really a very quick trip, about a, a two-day, almost a three-day trip uh, with our brothers in northern Galilee. Israeli citizens, but non-Jewish. We'd call them Palestinian. They called themselves Phoenicians. And today, there are Pentecostal homeless churches in northern Galilee and in Bethlehem because of this. Isn't God good? You've got Pentecostal homeless brothers and sisters, IPHC brothers and sisters in Bethlehem today and in northern Galilee, worshiping the same Jesus filled with the same Holy Spirit. And, and we went to organize the very first Pentecostal homeless conference in Israel. And got there, and I thought I was going up in the northern Galilee to where the churches are, but our, one of my colleagues there had said, there's a group of Americans and here, and they're doing a tour thing, and, and they want you to go with them. And I really didn't want to go. I'd done the tour thing before. But he, he said, you really need to spend some time with these guys. So I did, and I'm glad I did. Wonderful brothers. And we went down towards the Dead Sea. I'd been, I've done that thing before. But I had never gone to En Gedi and didn't realize it until the tour bus pulled into En Gedi, the text that I read to you. Go into En Gedi. And you walk back into this canyon area where David and this episode has occurred. High walls and really a canyon about as wide as probably your church property here. Rough, rough terrain. And you realize there's a small stream running down into the Dead Sea. Which explains why the text said there were sheep folds down there. You had to have fresh water for the sheep. And you work your way back to the very back where David and his men would have finally hung out. And you come to this incredibly beautiful pool, again, just about the size of this platform, with a waterfall that's probably about as twice as high as your ceiling here. And this wonderful waterfall is coming down, fresh water, this wonderful pool of refreshing water. And the tour guide says this, because that pool's been there for millenniums. The tour guide said, where do you think that water came from as it's coming out of the top of that rock up there and coming down here? We all say, tell us. He said, 15 years ago, it rained in the hill country of Judah and Hebron up around Jerusalem. And when it rained 15 years ago, that water has been working its way down through the rocks because it's over 3,000 feet from the hill country down to the Dead Sea area. And it has worked its way down for 15 years, purifying itself. And what you see right now is fresh living water coming out from 15 years ago, providing what you need right now. Well, you don't tell that story to a bunch of Pentecostal preachers <laughs> without a revival breaking out right there. 
because we all knew what that meant personally and we all knew this story out of 1 Samuel 24 and 25 and we understood that here was David at the lowest place of his life right next to the Dead Sea that you can't drink and you can't survive on but right in the middle of his hopelessness and desolation God had been preparing fresh living water years before for everything that he needed now listen to me dear ones whether you're at the high place and you're riding on a full tank or whether you're running out of gas in life right now and you don't see how in the world you're going to get out of this situation I'm telling you you will find God in both places and for some of you at this lowest difficult place of life he knew years ago you were going to be right here and he has provided hope for you grace for you mercy for you everything that you need right now this morning in this place let's pray Lord this morning we thank you we thank you for the power of your word we thank you that, as David later wrote, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the highest places, thou art there. If I descend into Sheol, thou art there. And we thank you that you know how to meet us with grace, sometimes with the gentle rebuke we need, and more often than not with the abundant provision of your right now response to the hopelessness of our lives. I ask in the mighty name of Jesus, the living water of God, that you will touch men and women, some who've entered here with hopelessness in their heart, that they may know you have known where they are and you have provided a long time ago exactly what they're going to need for this occasion. Give us grace, O oh Lord, to trust you to depend on you for those of us Lord who are struggling with the temptations of our own success remind us that you've put us here for your purposes and your glory and free us from the contamination of our pride so that genuine humility opens the door for your name to be glorified in the holy name of Jesus, amen. Church, would you stand with me this morning? And